0: Hello, you're listening to Sunday Starter. I'm Andy Mangum. On Sunday Starter, we look at a Sunday on the lectionary and we look at one of the texts that's on that uh, lectionary assignment for the revised common lectionary and try to get a head start on our preparation for Sunday. Hence the name, Sunday Starter. Uh, welcome. We've been looking at the, the, uh, the season after Pentecost, so we're in the fifth Sunday after Pentecost. Uh, what is called Proper 10, and during this season, for these five weeks, I've been looking at uh, the Psalms. We've been doing a series entitled, From Wonder to Honesty, and so we are at the last of of that. Psalm 82 is the Psalm assigned to Proper 10 to the fifth Sunday after Pentecost, and it is the Honesty Sunday. So, uh, Psalm 82 uh, begins, God has taken God's place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. God holds judgment. Uh, here God is portrayed as speaking to some sort of unknown audience. Uh, the new, in- new Revised Standard Version says uh, divine counsel. Um, uh, some other translations take that as a more human context. Uh, the New American Standard Bible says God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judged, uh, judges the rulers and um, the the book of uh, the, the message from Eugene Peterson interprets that as uh, a judges, and so um, so so uh, we have this question, right? Uh, whether this is uh, understood as a divine court of uh, sub deities or whether this is addressed to the human systems. I, I you know this is where I lean that, right? That the psalm ought to be understood as addressing human systems. Of uh, uh, the legal system, the, the government, the the culture in which we live, uh, the trends and the attitudes that tend to prevail, and the economic systems in which we live. I think those um, are, for me, the analog for uh, what this divine court consists of: the the people being addressed, or the systems, the forces being addressed in this text. Um, though you know, it does sort of suggest that there is a a cosmology of of deities. This is what the New Jerome Biblical Commentary says about this text. Uh, It says that um, uh, this psalm is the theological midpoint between Israel's uh, early faith, in which, quote, other gods were real but subordinate to Yahweh, and Israel's later monotheism. Uh, Psalm 95, for instance, says, uh, the Lord is a great God and great king above all gods, Psalm 58 has a similar structure, saying, "Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods?" And Psalm 29 uh, says, uh, begins, "Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings." Uh, so, so you know, the, historically, there was this sense that that uh, that maybe uh, the gods of other countries or or uh, other cultures around them uh, were were present, and and so that's one way to do this. Like I said, for me, I think it makes more sense to understand this as being addressed to those systems that we can identify in our world today. But either way, we we have a conversation about that. Verse 2 says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Uh, This makes the accusation clear. The unjust have been defended by the system uh, or by the deities, and partiality has been shown to the wicked. Uh, The narrative framing of this text is judicial, so that the judges are now being judged, and they're being judged on the basis of how they have treated the wicked with favoritism and how they have treated the poor uh, with uh, unjustness. Tony Craven was one of my professors at Bright Divinity School. She wrote a book on the Psalms and uh, she re- identifies this struggling question as the Odyssey. She said that in all seasons of life, the faithful are concerned with a, quote, fair deal from God. In good times, when the relationship is right and things feel uh, comfortable, then we can, it is easy to assume, she writes, things are right with God, selves, and others. In such times, it seems that God, quote, is, she's quoting Psalm uh, 73 here, God is truly good to the upright, to those whose heart is pure. In bad times, she said, when bad things happen, some question God, selves, and others. When the relationship with God is not comfortable, the faithful may ask whether they're getting a fair deal from God. Uh, so Craven goes on to write that the song, the beliefs, attitudes, and practice of prayer in the Book of Psalms suggest that the psalms never found one fully satisfying response or solution to the difficult problem of reconciling God's identity and action with life experiences of evil. In fact, nowhere in the Hebrew Scriptures is the tension between belief in a benevolent, providential covenant God and the experience of evil, which causes suffering finally resolved in a way that testifies to a single answer that emerges as the solution for this very difficult problem. So she goes on to suggest that uh, Scripture does not provide that single monolithic uh, monologue answer to life's difficult problems, the, the, the question of theodicy, but rather suggests that there are seven different themes of how Scripture wrestles with suffering. She begins by saying that one pretty common theme in scripture is that suffering is the result of human sinfulness, not necessarily because of a punishment from God, but as a consequence for our sin. Secondly, that uh, suffering is a divine, and she quotes this, this is a quote, a divine pedagogical tool, God trying to teach us something. Uh, Third possibility is theophany, uh, that suffering is not a problem of those who turn and behold God. She, she, um, uh, she says this at verse, uh, page 120. Uh, resolution to suffering, actually dissolution of the problem, comes from the joy of communion with God. When one who suffers is caught up by God, uh, questions about suffering disappear. A fourth possibility is eschatological hope, hope in the near future based on past acts. God is the one who delivers for suffer- from suffering, and God is preparing to act. A fifth theme that runs through scriptures that look at suffering is that God is, in fact, unjust. Psalms uh, like Psalm 88 call for, uh, they, they offer a complaint. They open the door to express the boldest forms of complaint against the Lord's actions, assuming that God is responsible for the suffering. A, a sixth possibility is redemptive suffering, uh, the vicarious suffering of one on behalf of others, um, you think about Isaiah's suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Uh, I go to Moses uh, who intercedes for the people in Exodus 32, 31 and 32. Um, uh, the, the, the story there is that the people have sinned. They have made golden calf down at the base of the mountain. Moses is up at the top of the mountain receiving the law from God. And, and God's anger rages against the people threatens to destroy them and start over with Moses. And Moses intercedes for them, suffers for them vicariously. And and ultimately, though, says, if you're going to destroy them, you destroy me as well. So Psalm 106, 23 remembers that story and says this. uh, God said he would destroy them had not Moses, God's chosen one, stood in the breach before God to turn away God's wrath from destroying them. And then the the final possibility is that God is just. Here Craven concludes by quoting Walter Brueggemann saying that the question, why do innocents suffer, is transformed into how does history work. The answer that Israel knew very well is that history works through social processes. Those social processes are either legitimated or judged by God. They operate either equitably or unjustly either for the well-being of the community or for its destruction. That is how history works. Yahweh is discerned in Israel, sometimes as the impetus for social process, sometimes as the norm, and sometimes as the agent for the transformation of the process. What I want to say about these seven different possibilities, a lot of times what we want to do is we want to go to that which makes the most sense to us and that we resonate with, but what what Craven would would point out is that all of them are in the Scriptures. All of them get expressed, and so as we deal with this, but we don't want to say not that in this. Uh, you know, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of uh, God being named as unjust, though I have had plenty of prayers in which perhaps I complained uh, to God about uh, what I think is God's action. Uh, Others, uh, you know, wrestle with this idea that suffering can be redemptive, that somebody can suffer vicariously for another person. Um, But as we wrestle with those, we we must remember that we're contending with voices that are in Scripture itself, and rather than be dismissive, uh, actually engage and ponder, reflect, and and, uh, participate in the conversation. I believe God's word is heard in the midst of the conversation, rather than trying to smooth everything out. Make it a monologue, listen to the conversation that is scripture, and and then allow God to speak a word to you through that. Verse 3 begins, uh, give justice to the weak and the orphan, maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. The call is made in verses 3 and 4 for systemic change. Vindicating the weak and the orphan requires that protection is given to them in the face of legal or economic systems that would upend their lives. Psalm uh, 10, 17 through 18 says, O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline their inner to vindicate the orphan and oppressed so that uh, the person who is of earth will no longer cause terror. Uh, the New International Version translates that saying, so that those from the earth may strike terror no more. So uh, there is that that sense, that last uh, reference that, that Brueggemann made of God being the impetus for change, uh, of bringing about social change. Um, that's really what's, what's here, as is, it is in other texts, that there is an understanding that we live in a world where uh, there are forces that, that deteriorate life, that are acidic, and that, uh, that we are seeking God's guidance and in, in God's intervention in the repair of those systems. God continues to uh, in the in the prophetic imagination of the psalm uh, God says to the, uh, uh, the 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 gathering there of of whoever that is rescue the weak and the needy deliver them from the hand of the wicked notice the verbs that are used here in these two verses 3 and 4 I think are the ethical core of our text this morning uh, give justice uh, vindicate uh, judge on behalf of and defend are all different versions of that first verb that is uh, in in the uh, in verse three, and different translations have different language for that. Other translations for the second verb uh, say maintain the right of do justice, provide justice. The last two verses are almost always translated as rescue and deliver, but uh, there is a sense of, of that that um, people are living with. Uh, oppression, they're living under unjust systems, and and the appeal is being made, in the prophetic imagination of the psalm, the appeal is being made for God to say to whoever it is that holds the power, whoever it is that has the capacity to change that, and, and I don't think the psalm envisions that as being an individual person, but rather in some form uh, a larger system in which people live to do that which brings about deliverance and rescue for people, justice and wholeness for those who are poor. Verse 5 moves on and says, They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk around in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. So verse 5 moves on to be uh, more of a commentary about uh, these systems um, and uh, the uh, the statement there, all the foundations of the earth are shaken, sort of just kind of hangs there in the balance uh, of our more literal translations. But some translations take a next step and add causal language. So there's this accusation against the system that is ignorant uh, and is walking around in darkness. And so the causal translations like um, uh, the Lexham, which is a, a, a translation by the people who make Logos Bible software, uh, say that um, uh, they go about in darkness so that all the foundations of the earth are shaken. So that statement about the shaken foundations of the earth is, is a, a linked to uh, a cause that is generated by uh, the ignorance and um, uh, uh, bumbling of the system that, that's being judged. Some other translations add more contextual language, but still try to connect these two together. The New Century Version says, while the world is falling apart, they, whoever the audience is for this psalm, they are, are walking around in darkness. While the world is shaken to the core, the New Living Bible translates, or and now everything's falling apart. The world's coming unglued is the way the message translates that phrase. So uh, there are consequences. I think I would take the more causal approach, though I have no linguistic reason to do that. I don't read Hebrew, sadly. But uh, I would take a more causal approach that that uh, the reason the foundations of the earth are being shaken is because the the, 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 the pieces of our lives, the economic, the legal, uh, the governmental, the cultural pieces of our lives uh, are are. are are working from a lack of awareness, their eyes are, are not open. Um, they are they are closed off from the needs of the people and the impact that their decisions make. And again, I don't want to uh, root this too thoroughly in the individual persons uh, because I think that's where we get judgmental and accusational. But I also think it's important to keep this psalm's integrity as much intact as we can. Uh, that the psalm does not address individuals. Uh, This is not a good Samaritan text where an individual person sees another individual person hurting and stops to bind up the wounds. That's an important message. I'm not at all dismissing the importance of that message. That is one of the central messages of Jesus' ministry is that we would uh, see the hungry and feed them and that we would see the naked and clothe them, that we would see those who are sick and visit them. Uh, And so that that individual response of care and concern is important. But this text really is addressing a larger grouping uh, or larger aspect or facet uh, of our life together. Um, So uh, because of that, there's there's that that clear claim. Uh, Verses 6, 7, and 8 say, I say, you are God's children of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, verse 7, you shall die like mortals. And fall like any prince. And then finally, verse 8 uh, says, Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. Psalm 82 is interpreted Christologically in the book of John. Uh, in, in, uh, in John chapter 10, there are some opponents who oppose Jesus. They pick up stones to kill him. Jesus said, For what of the many good works are you stoning me? They say, We're not. You're claiming to be God. And and so uh, Jesus quotes Psalm 82 and says, "I have shown you many good works." And uh, the, where there's the verse 34 and 36 through 36 says, uh, "Is it not written in your law? I uh, I have said you are gods." If uh, he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be set aside. What about those the one whose father set apart as his own and sent into the world? Uh, so. Uh, interpreting that to, to to justify claims of his own divinity, that it's rooted in Scripture itself and by his commission. And I think that's an important uh, reference, though I'm not sure if I were preaching this text, uh, I would move in that direction. The, the, the Psalm 82 is a place where uh, many of us who preach on a regular basis struggle. Uh, we have heard time and time and time again, that our people don't want us to get political. That's usually the phrase that they use. Um, and, and only talk about those individual responses of spirituality and comfort of knowing redemption. Uh, all of that is understood as something that an individual experiences and that, uh, the responses to this world, uh, should be individual in terms of stewardship and service and, um, uh, community with others. Uh, but, but, um, But when we start talking about the way systems need to change, whether that's the economic systems in which we live or government systems that that govern us, the laws that govern us, or the culture as a whole, um, I find most of the churches I have served, people get a little uneasy. Um, And I think it's because we've been so triggered and so um, conformed to this world's patterns of making every systemic issue a partisan issue. Uh, that if I am conservative, the problems that are existing in the system are the liberals' faults. If I'm liberal, all the problems of this world uh, and the systems are created by the opposing opponents. And so we, we commodify, I don't think that's a word, but I'm going to use it as one, we commodify the, uh, the, the evil uh, and use it as leverage over and against the, the opponents that we see in this political fight. And and so for me, the, the the Christian response that's drawn out of this text is is first and foremost not to assume that God has no interest in, or that biblical faith has no interest in the systems in which we live, or create, correcting those systems. There is this call to to judge the nations and to uh, to make right and to give right uh, for those who are poor and oppressed. That God. Uh, would fulfill God's vision of human wholeness for all people, which means a necessary change for those who are hurt most deeply by the systems in which we live. So I think that's that's one aspect of this psalm that cannot be avoided. We cannot do uh, this psalm justice if we think that the only response that we have toward human evil is to uh, act in charitable ways. As important as that is, it's not the only way that we are to act. But I think the second thing, and I'd say this is what makes this about that prayer pattern of going from wonder to honesty, uh, and that is this is not primarily a call to action. Uh, In this text, there is prophetic imagination where the psalmist imagines what God ought to say, to whomever God ought to say it, uh, but that, that God ought to say these things, that God ought to call out the destruction that we see in the world. And that God ought to change those things, and ultimately, it is a prayer that that not only God would act, but that God would guide. Uh, this is maybe where I believe, uh, where my own beliefs take over uh, a little bit more. I'm not sure that I think God interferes as much as we want God to, uh, or intervenes. I certainly do believe that God uh, acts uh, in, in special ways and unique ways in special moments of our lives, um, but but ultimately. I think what we're doing in prayer is we're yielding ourselves to God's vision and asking for God to guide us. And so this is a systemic prayer uh, that God would help us understand how the systems in which we live need to change and to have the courage to move in that direction. Uh, Initially, I thought about a number of different issues that are on the surface uh, of our culture today, And, and you can pull up the headlines and see people who have been damaged by the systems in which we live, ultimately decided for the sake of this podcast uh, not to to mention those, not because I don't want to get political or that I don't want to um, talk about particular issues, but because I, I felt uneasy about using as illustrations people's suffering. Uh, we have had some tremendous uh, manifestations of suffering here in my home state uh, this week that that break my heart. Uh, but, but to make the point is not, you know, to use their life to make a point is not healthy. and That's not right. Um, But I do think in the context of worship and and in the context of a praying community uh, that we would need to name those things, that that there are uh, groups of people who are hurt and to call not just for change, but also to say as a community of faith, we are going to God and calling on God to, in some ways, uh, bring about the change to the systems. And and for me, that means acknowledging that we don't necessarily know off the top of our head, just simply with the analysis that we have available to us, we don't know how the systems need to change. We need God to guide us in that way. I think that's what it means when we say, God judge the nations. It is a plea for, for guidance uh, in this very difficult world. And so that makes this a very honest psalm Dealing with the depths of human suffering and going to the Lord asking for guidance. So uh, that's our, our psalm for today, Psalm 82. I uh, hope you redeem the commutes for the drives are evil, and we'll see you next time.